Have you guys ever, um, have you ever known somebody that you knew that if you wanted them to remember something, you just knew you were going to have to tell them like two or three times for it to stick? Um, you know, I, I confess that I'm more, I am that person for my wife. Like my wife knows that if she wants to remember something, wants me to remember something that's important, she's going to have to tell me like two or three times. She's probably going to have to tell me like, hey, take out your phone, put this on your calendar because you're going to forget it. Like I just, details just don't stick in my brain. And I've been that way for a long time and I have to find different ways to deal with it. And I, I really think that God was doing some sort of divine retribution um, when we had two little boys, because it is like this repetitive, like always having to repeat everything to my boys to get them to understand it. Like if I want something to stick in their brain, I have to say it over and over and over again. And so Amy, my wife and I, we find ourselves, we have these certain phrases that we use almost on a daily basis with my five-year-old right now, Elijah. um, We have to sit down with him and have to like get eye level with him and say, okay, Elijah, What's more, import- what's more important, people or things? He's like, people, you know, what's more important, people or things? We have to keep repeating this because I want him to know how important it is that he loves his brother more than he loves his Legos, you know, and that when his friends come over, that, that he will share with his friends because people are more important with things. And it seems like no matter how many times I repeat it, he's, he's, he's getting it a little bit, like he's making some progress, but I have to keep repeating it. I think all of us are like that with some things. And what we're going to see in the text today, we're going to just read this text. And you might go, man, this sounds really familiar. Like, this feels like a repeat sermon. And there's a good reason for that. It's because a little less than a month ago, I was standing right up here. We were in Mark chapter 8. And we saw something very similar to what we're going to read tonight. It's Jesus is going to make a prediction to his disciples about where, what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. He's going to say, hey, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And he's repeating almost word for word. It's slightly different, but he's repeating almost word for word to the disciples what we've already heard him say. And in reality, this is only the second of three times that Mark records this prediction that Jesus makes. And so that's the only the recorded instances. Who knows how many times Jesus, when he was alone with his disciples, actually said these things to his disciples. He was repeating it over and over again. And each one of these times that he repeats it, it kind of follows a similar pattern. Jesus makes a prediction about his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. The disciples then respond in a way that reveals their confusion or their lack of understanding. And then Jesus capitalizes on their confusion to teach them. Okay, and that's gonna kind of be the flow uh, as we go through through the scripture tonight. It's Jesus, Jesus' prediction, the disciples' response that reveals their confusion, and then Jesus teaching the disciples. So let's jump in and read, uh, starting in verse 30. Just a reminder of kind of where we are in the story. Um, it, it starts off saying they left that place. Well, that place is Caesarea Philippi. Remember, that's where they've been now for the last few weeks. Uh, Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi for kind of a retreat. He teaches them. He takes them up on a mountain where they see him in his glory for the first time. And they're, they're freaked out about it. And Jesus tells them not to be afraid. You remember that? Uh, and then they come down the mountain and there's this little boy possessed by a spirit. And uh, his disciples can't heal the boy. And Jesus heals him. And he teaches them about prayer uh, in the midst of that. So that had just happened. And then Mark 30 picks up right here. Or Mark 9:30 picks up right here. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. 
But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they all kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 to himself and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child and had him stand among them and he he took him in his arms and he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord out of of Mark chapter nine. Um, A couple things that I want us to see in in this passage. We're gonna start with this prediction piece. Remember, Jesus makes a prediction. Before he even gets to the prediction though, Mark reveals something significant about Jesus' focus. You remember when, uh, when we were in Mark 8, we talked about that being a watershed moment. You guys remember that? That um, Jesus made this prediction and he revealed to the disciples the nature of his mission, that he was going to die. And that moment kind of changed the course of his ministry and changed the understanding of the disciples. Jesus' focus now is undeniably clear. He has this laser-like focus to get to Jerusalem. And we know that because in verse 30, it says that he passed right through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know where he was because he's teaching his disciples. Early in his ministry, Jesus spent so much time in Galilee, kind of bouncing village to village, synagogue to synagogue, really spending time teaching about the kingdom of God. But at this point in his ministry, he's got laser-like precision to get to Jerusalem. He passes right through Galilee, wants to be left alone because he needs to teach his disciples about what's about to go down. And this is where we find this prediction. He says, hey guys, listen, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. Now, I read that, that prediction, that statement multiple times this week, like trying to wrap my mind around what Jesus, why he spends so much time on this phrase with the disciples. Now, I was talking with Brandon. He's, he's teaching in, in Hillsborough Village tonight, and he kind of asked me, he's like, why, why do you think he comes back to this so much? Why does Jesus use this phrase over and over again? And the more I thought about why he was doing that, I, I kept thinking about the, the huge nature, the, the nature of this prediction. You know, all of Christianity, the entirety of the Christian faith hangs on this prediction and its fulfillment. I mean, think about that. If this prediction is not said and is not fulfilled, the Christian faith does not exist. Think about how different our world would be, how different your life would be if this statement of Jesus' death and his resurrection was not fulfilled. The world would be completely different. Now, now some might argue, some might say, hey, we'll be better without religion. Some might say, no, we're really glad that it happened. And I don't think tonight our place is to argue about whether it'd be better or worse. I think, I think the world would be much worse had this never happened. But, but we, no one can deny Whether they think better or worse, nobody can deny that the death and the resurrection of Jesus radically changed the history and the course of humanity. I mean, if this did not happen, none of us would be here right now. None of us would be, you wouldn't be sitting in these chairs. If this did not happen around the world, millions of people would not be gathering on Sundays to worship and praise Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that this statement defines what it means to follow him. 
And so he keeps coming back to it over and over again with the disciples. Guys, listen, I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna be resurrected. Listen, pay attention, this is so important. I am gonna be betrayed when we get to Jerusalem. I am gonna be killed, but I'm gonna rise again. Do you guys get it? You must pay attention, this is so important. He keeps hammering on it for them because he knew, he knew the impact that it would make on the world. And what's amazing, although we're gonna see that the disciples did not understand it here, if you fast forward in their story to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is in the Bible and it's the story of what happened after Jesus died and resurrected and his disciples started teaching. This prediction that Jesus makes become the rallying cry for the Christian faith. Peter, who's sitting there when Jesus makes this prediction, who doesn't understand it here, In Acts chapter two, he stands up and basically his sermon is this. Hey, everybody, listen, Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. You killed him, but God raised him over and over again. You see Peter proclaiming this everywhere he goes in the book of Acts. Hey, Jesus, the son of God, you missed it and you killed him, but God raised him. Make him the Lord, turn to him, repent and follow him. Jesus, the son of God, he died, but God raised him. This is the rallying cry for the Christian faith. And what we do with this prediction and its fulfillment, I believe is the most important thing about who you are. What we do with this event in history of Jesus's death and resurrection, whether we believe it If we follow him, that is the most important thing about who we are. And so Jesus keeps coming back to it with his disciples. He wants them to hear how important this is. You know, it's it's encouraging to look at Acts and see that the disciples eventually get it. But in this story, we see pretty clearly that they still don't get it. They don't understand. And so we've got the prediction and then you've got the disciples' response. Look in verse 32. It says, but they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And then Mark goes on to describe how much they missed it. It says, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Jesus gives them this prediction and their response is confusion and and fear says they didn't understand, they were confused, and they were afraid to ask. Confusion and fear. And honestly, I think the fear is is pretty understandable for a couple reasons. One, I think that they remember, like they're afraid to ask because they remember what happened just a few days earlier when Jesus said this and Peter spoke up. Remember? Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. And and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like he has this harsh word. You You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so all of them are kind of going, I don't, I don't really want Jesus to reply that way again. But I think they're also beginning to think about the implications for them. That if their, their master, their rabbi, their teacher, the person they're following is saying, hey, where I'm heading is leading to death. They're probably beginning to pick up on what that means for them. And so there's some natural fear in them. They don't want to ask, they're afraid to ask. But yet they're also confused. And I'll be really honest that most of my life when I've read this passage, I read, I'm like, they did not understand. I'm like, what is wrong with these guys? <laughs> I mean, Jesus couldn't make it much more clear, right? Mark even says in chapter eight, when he says this, he says, Jesus began to speak plainly to them. Like, I mean, how clear does Jesus have to make it? He's like, hey guys, I'm gonna die, okay? And then I'm gonna come back to life. 
You get it? Okay, I'm gonna, you don't get it. Okay, I'm going to die. You know what dying is, right? I'm going to die. There's going to be a death. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. And they're still just like, uh, what? Like, I'm like, how could they not get this? It's so clear. But this week as I was reading, I felt like God kind of convicted me a little bit and pulled me into the skin of the disciples and helped me understand their confusion and helped me see how I'm very much like the disciples. See, I think their confusion makes a lot of sense for a few reasons. One, you know, for the majority of their time with Jesus, they've been with him for over two years now, almost three. And the majority of their time with him, when he has taught, he has been speaking in a lot of parables. And remember, parables were a story that looked like one thing on the outside, but underneath they have a lot of meaning, something else, a very deep, different meaning. And so, you know, at least a few of the disciples are kind of going, all right, is this another parable, Jesus? You know, they're, they're like trying to figure out, is, this, is there a deeper meaning here? Or is it death and resurrection? You know, they're like trying to figure it out and they're confused. I also think it makes sense that they're confused because you remember last time we looked and when he said this, their understanding of the Messiah, of the Christ, doesn't die. Like that's not what happens to the Messiah. So they're still trying to reconcile their worldview, their understanding of the Christ with this prediction that Jesus is making that he's gonna die. Third, I think it, they're confused just because, man, the natural order, I mean, just according to, to the natural order of things, people don't rise from the dead. When was the last time you saw somebody rise from the dead? When was the last time you saw somebody get up out of their casket and start walking and talking and eating? Like, it doesn't happen, right? So really, it's no wonder they were confused. I mean, can you imagine if the person that, that leads you, you're a mentor or a spiritual teacher or you're a house church leader or something says to you, hey, um, I'm gonna be killed and I'm gonna come back to life. Like, you're like, what? What's, what is wrong with you? So of course they're confused. Of course they're confused. And Mark shows us how confused they are that in the middle of their anxiety, they start arguing about who's the greatest. You know, in their ignorance, in their confusion, they just start talking about which one of them is gonna be the greatest. And you know, the only thing worse than feeling ignorant or kind of clueless or confused is having your ignorance exposed. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those moments where you had no idea what you were talking about or doing, but you pretended that you did <laughs> and then you got exposed in the middle of it? You know, when I was in, in high school, um, I liked to think that I knew a lot about music and you know, the music, just different bands and different types of music and styles of music. And um, I pretended that that, you know, I thought that made me cool, that I knew a lot about music. And I can remember I was about a freshman in high school and I'm hanging out with this guy who's a senior, you know, so he was really cool and I needed to impress him however I could. And so music comes up. And so I ask him, I'm like, yeah, you know, what kind of, you know, what do you listen to? What, what music do you listen to? And he's like, well, I'm really into ska. Well, I don't know if, if any of you remember, ska was this like swing influenced punk rock music in the early mid nineties. And uh, so it's a style of music. He says, I'm really into ska. And I go, yeah, I've heard of them. They're, they're pretty good, you know? Like <laughs> totally exposed my ignorance. I mean, look like such an idiot. And my older brother's standing there and he just starts laughing like, you idiot, you know? And the other guy starts ridiculing me. And I, in my ignorance, I tried to pretend that I knew what I was talking about and I totally got exposed. And that. That's what's happening here to the disciples. You know, they get into the house. We think it's probably Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus has heard their conversation and they sit down. And he's like, hey guys, what were you talking about? What were you arguing about on the road? And they're all like, uh. <laughs> none of them want to say anything. They're like deer in headlights, just silent. 
because they've been exposed in their ignorance. But I think the way Jesus responds to them in the middle of their ignorance and confusion is really beautiful. Jesus was not like my older brother looking for ammunition to belittle his kid brother. He's also not like this senior guy that just wanted to poke fun at a little freshman. Jesus responds really beautifully to their confusion. And that's where we're gonna go next. But before we, before we do that, before we get to Jesus' response, I think it's really important that all of us take a moment and try to identify with the disciples in their confusion. Jesus is telling them that he is going to die and come back to life, and they're utterly confused. Now, some of us have grown up in church and we have heard this story so many times that it feels so familiar, it does not even occur to us to be confused about this. Okay, yeah, Jesus died and he resurrected. That's just, that's what I've always known. I've known him my whole life. Some of us though are utterly confused by the depth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if it doesn't confuse you, take the moment to find one of your friends who doesn't know Jesus and try to explain to them the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You will immediately understand how confusing it is. Now, I can remember um, when we were planting a church in Vancouver, there was a young woman who we were really good friends with. My wife was good friends with her and we got to study with her. And I remember trying to explain to her why Jesus' death was important to her and why his resurrection mattered to her. And I remember starting with, she, she first had kind of uh, just intellectual objections to the idea of somebody raising from the dead. And then she kind of got over that and was kind of like, okay, I, I can accept that if there is a God that's all powerful, he could raise him from the dead. And she's like, but why? Why would, why would this man 2000 years ago dying have anything to do with me? I don't need somebody to die for me. So then I, I began to go in and, and teach her about sin. You know, I'm like, well, it's because you, know, you, you have sin and, and God is perfect and so you needed a sacrifice for your sin. And she's like, blank stare, like, what's sin? I'm like, all right, back up a little bit. So I, I go to Romans and I start taking her through Romans and I'm like, look, see, it says here that, that God is all glorious and all of us have fallen short of his glory and there is no one righteous before God. And I think I've got her and she's like, blank stare. She's like, what is righteous and why would I wanna be righteous? The only way she had ever heard the word righteous used was when somebody was called self-righteous. And that's a negative thing. So I'm like, oh man, how am I gonna explain this to you? It was so confusing. And even for those of us who have been following Jesus for years, if we're all honest, there are complexities and mysterious parts about the gospel of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection that escape our understanding. It's confusing. In the middle of this, Jesus does not respond to their confusion. And this is what I want us all to hear tonight. Like if you've ever had confusion when it comes to the Christian faith, just know like you're in good company here. Nobody in this room has all the answers. Nobody in this room could answer every single question that you have. And we are all searching, all asking questions. And there have been moments in all of our lives where we've had confusion about why the gospel is so important and what it even means. And I want us all to hear the way that Jesus responds to confusion because he is not a belittling kind of person. He is not a person that makes fun of us in our ignorance. But look how he responds. It says in verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. He calls them to himself. He doesn't belittle them, but he sits down. He says, hey guys, come in, let me, let me teach you. Let me help you in your understanding. Let me help you understand what's going on here. 
This is the kind of person, this is the kind of God that Jesus is. He's not out to expose us in our foolishness and in our confusion and our ignorance. He's out to invite us in to give us a bigger picture of who he is. And so he responds by inviting them in, by starting to teach, and then he teaches them like a great teacher does. He gives them a a statement or a teaching followed up by an example. Here's a statement. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And then he gives them an example. He took a little child and had him stand, stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, look, look guys, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So he starts with this statement. He doesn't say, guys, knock it off. Stop trying to be the greatest. You guys don't get it, you bunch of morons. It's not what he says. He says, guys, listen, if you want to be, you want to be the greatest, I understand you want to be the greatest. If you want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, then seek after greatness as God defines it. Like try to be great the way that God defines greatness. See, one of the guys that's sitting there listening to Jesus say this, his name is John, and he's going to write a letter later where he just says very simply, he finally understands, he says, God is love. God is love. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be great, seek to be great the way God defines it. God is love and greatness in God's kingdom, greatness in God's eyes is self-giving, self-denying, sacrificing love. That's what greatness is. He says, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be willing to become the very least, become the last. You have to become a servant to everyone. Now, this flies into the face of the way the world understands greatness. It does now in our time, in our culture, and it did then as well. You see, the dominant way of thinking then was influenced by Greek philosophy. And the greatest Greek philosopher, Plato, he said it this way. He said, ruling and not serving is proper to a man. Ruling, ruling and not serving is proper to a man. And, and Plato's followers, his disciples after him, they, they understood that and they said it this way. They said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? So their understanding of greatness did not jive with Jesus's description of greatness. And oftentimes ours didn't either. You know, I mean, there are many ways to define greatness in our culture you know, some people define greatness by, by the wealth that they have, by, by the material belongings. Some people define greatness by the achievements, the accomplishments that they've made. Some people define greatness by fame, by being well-known and known by everyone. Some people define greatness uh, by their education and their knowledge. Some people define greatness by experiences, the places they've gotten to travel, the things they've gotten to see. But that's not the way that Jesus defines greatness. He says, look, if you want to be great, you need to be the very least, a servant to all. Now on the surface, when we hear this, we're like, ah, man, here we go again, Jesus. I got to lay down my life. I got to be the least. What, Jesus, why do you want my life to suck so bad? Like, why, what's good? why do you want me to have such a horrible life? And we feel like this description of greatness does not really describe a great life until you meet someone that actually lives like this. Have you ever met anyone that actually lived like they wanted to take care of everyone around them in a healthy way. 
Have you ever met somebody that every person they met, they were looking for a way that they could lift that person up or serve that person? Man, when you meet someone like that, it's so powerful. I was thinking over people in my own life that I've seen this quality in. And, you know, I think about an adult child whose parent is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I think about my mom specifically. When her grandfather had Alzheimer's, she would repeatedly, and her grandmother as well, both, she would repeatedly go visit them, serve them, bathe them, feed them. And most of the time they had no idea who she even was. You imagine serving somebody repeatedly and selflessly and sacrificially, knowing they have absolutely nothing to give back to you. Or think about a young woman that, that Amy and I knew in Oregon and uh, she was a mother and a wife and her husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer and two small children. And she selflessly gave everything that she had to always take care of her kids and to always take care of her husband, making sure he never missed an appointment, even when it conflicted with the stuff in her kids. And she somehow found this way to juggle their life to make sure her kids were cared for and that her husband made it to his chemo treatments and so that she could sit next to him as he underwent chemo. And she sat with him all the way until he was on his deathbed, always making sure that he had what he needed, that he was cared for and that her children were cared for. Maybe in a more everyday situation that we might see, I think about, it's, it's a picture of that house church that comes around you when you're in the middle of a really painful or difficult season. And they come over to your house and they mow your yard, they watch your kids, they do your dishes, they do your laundry for you. Or it's a picture of that roommate that you have that voluntarily picks up the slack on your portion of the housework when they know that you're in the middle of a really hard time, a really difficult time, when you meet somebody like this, you don't argue about whether or not they're great. <laughs> Man, you are just so drawn to them. You want to be near them. You are seeing greatness played out before you the way that God defines it, the way that Jesus defines it. And then Jesus, after saying this, he follows up with an example to make sure that they get it. He takes this child it's passing through the room and he brings him to the middle. Something we need to understand about children during Jesus's day. Jesus in this story, he is not extolling the virtues and the innocence of childhood. Oftentimes that's how we hear it because that's how our culture looks at kids. We see them as sweet and innocent and virtuous. But in the first century Jewish world, a small child was really more of a strain than anything else. They couldn't do anything to contribute to family life. They were someone that always had to be cared for and looked after. They were kind of thought of as having not arrived yet. And so they were not very high on the social ladder of acceptance. They were looked at as insignificant at best. And yet Jesus says, guys, don't miss this. You have to become the servant of all. And they're sitting in Peter's house and this little boy starts walking through. Maybe Peter's one of his nephews or maybe, maybe his own son. He walks through and Jesus reaches past the disciples and he grabs this boy and he pulls him front and center in front of him. And he says, guys, whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes someone who is seemingly insignificant, you are bestowing significance on them. And when you do it in my name, you're doing it for me. And you're not just doing it for me, but you're doing it for the one who sent me, my father. And I wonder who are the people that we look at as seemingly insignificant in our world? 
And you may not do it intentionally, but we all have these people, right? The people kind of that just live on the periphery of, of our world. The people that, that most times feel just kind of annoying. I don't, it may be that person at work or in your class that nobody really wants to talk to. And every time they walk up, you kind of think of your exit strategy. Like, how can I get out of here? So I have to talk to this person. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes the seemingly insignificant bestows significance on them in my name. Or maybe it's that person that, that always tries to sell you a paper on, on the street corner or is always asking you for money. You know, I don't know who it is in your life, but the people that are seemingly insignificant, Jesus says, it's not enough just to serve those that you love. If you wanna be great, the level of service that you have will serve even the seemingly insignificant in your world. And so he responds to them in their confusion by drawing them in. He says, guys, come here, let me teach you. And he takes their understanding of greatness and he flips it over and he says, yes, strive for greatness, but strive for greatness the way that our heavenly father defines it. And this is how he teaches them. Now, I was really encouraged by all of that, but I don't know if you noticed, but in Jesus' teaching them, he didn't really do anything to clear up their confusion, did he? Did you notice that? He draws them in and he teaches them this beautiful picture, but he doesn't offer them any sort of explanation about his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. That really struck me this week. I'm like, Jesus, why didn't, I mean, it is confusing. If anyone could explain it, surely it's Jesus. <laughs> like, why didn't Jesus sit down with the disciples and begin to unpack for them all the theological depths of his death and his resurrection? Why did he not give them an explanation? And here's what I realized when I read, it's like he did not give them an explanation, but man, he did give them an invitation. And I realized that Jesus, in the midst of our confusion, he does not always give us the explanation we want, but he will always, always give you an invitation to come in further, to know him more, to look at his life, to model his life. He will say, hey, I know you don't understand. I know you're confused. I know it doesn't make sense. But right now, I just want to invite you to more of me. He says to the disciples, he says, look, I know you don't get it. I know it's confusing. You will understand. You're going to watch me play this out. You're going to watch me lay down my life and you will begin to understand. But before you watch me, I just want to invite you to know me. I want to invite you to follow me. And this invitation, this is the nature of faith. This is the nature of what it looks like to trust Jesus, even before maybe some of our answers or uh, some of our questions are completely answered. Jesus gives us the invitation to step on the path that he's walking. You know, this week I was thinking about this Oswald Chambers quote. Oswald Chambers is one of my favorite Christian writers and he has this quote about faith. He says, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows and trusts the one who is leading. He said, this life is a life of faith, not of intellect and reason, but a life of knowing the who who makes us go. The root of faith is in the knowledge of a person. And so in the midst of our confusion, sometimes we may not be ready for the explanation but Jesus always stands arms open wide, giving an invitation to know him more, to come in further, to see him more, to look, have your life look like his life. So Jesus gives a prediction about his death 
and his resurrection, the most important event in human history. The disciples respond in a way that reveals their confusion. And Jesus in turn responds by teaching them and inviting them in so that their life can begin to look like his life. To kind of wrap all of this up, I, I think what I want to do is just kind of give us a, a real quick cliff notes of, of this whole uh, section and this whole sermon tonight. So if you slept through everything else, you can wake up and listen to this. This is the Cliff's Notes. Like this is the short version. You can pay attention here. Two things, two things from this, from this whole talk. First, the contrast between Jesus's focus and the disciples' focus. Did you guys catch that in the middle of all this? Jesus relentlessly focused on getting to Jerusalem. Jesus was always focused on what he could lay down, on how he could serve, on what he could give. The disciples, in the midst of their confusion, always focused on what they could get, always focused on their own status, on how Jesus' ways could serve them, not how they could serve. Tonight, I invite all of us just to kind of examine our hearts, like, which one of those is our focus? Does the focus of your heart and your life reflect more that of Jesus, looking for the ways that you can serve and give to those around you? Or, or does it look more like the disciples, focused on your own status and focused on making something of yourself? And I'm under this just as much as you are. Like I, when I read this, I'm like, man, I still, I still struggle with wanting to make a name for myself. But the problem is that our desire for status, our desire to make something of ourselves, stands in direct opposition to our friendship and our fellowship with Jesus. So tonight I encourage you just to examine your heart, ask Jesus, say, Jesus, where, where am I letting my desire for status stand in the way of my friendship with you? So that's the first thing. The second thing from the sermon is this, is, is the whole idea of invitation before explanation. That if you have confusion somewhere in your understanding of the Christian faith, of what it means to follow Jesus, just know that Jesus may not show up to you right away with an explanation but he will always show up to you with an invitation. If, if you're following, if, if you know Jesus and you have been following Jesus and maybe you're in the middle of a season where you have no idea where he's leading you, you don't know why things are so difficult right now, you're wondering where Jesus is and you're looking for an explanation for why things have been so difficult in your life. You may not get an explanation, but man, Jesus is right there giving you an invitation and he's saying, look, will you come to me? If you are confused how to share your faith with your friends that don't know Jesus, follow the model of Jesus. Love them the way that Jesus loved. Our friend in Vancouver, she wasn't drawn to us because we had all this understanding. She even told us that the, one of the things that drew her to us was our willingness to admit that we did not have all the answers. What drew her to us was that she saw Jesus in my wife. She saw Jesus in the way that Amy loved her and served her. So if you're confused about how to share your faith with your friends, start just by showing them. Give them the invitation. Thirdly, if you're here tonight and, and you have, you've never decided to follow Jesus, maybe you're new to this whole idea of Christianity and some of this teaching about Jesus' death and resurrection sounds confusing to you, unclear, just know that you're not alone in that, first of all. But know that in the midst of your confusion, Jesus stands with his arms wide open inviting you to know him more Will you step out and trust him? Not be, just because of we say that, but, but because of what he did. 
because of his willingness to lay himself down for others. I mean, he is someone who is worth modeling and emulating. So if you're confused, my challenge tonight is, is to say this, find somebody tonight over communion, come to the respond banner, find somebody, a friend that you can just look at them and say, I don't completely understand yet, but I want to trust in Jesus. And I want to step on the path of following him. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray and and communion is set up all around the room. We're going to take this bread and this juice that reminds us of this death and this resurrection. And I just encourage you to, to share with one another, where are you confused? Where does it not make sense? And pray for one another that Jesus would reveal himself to you and be inviting you further into following him. Let's pray.